Today we're starting on the church. The church. So that's going to be relevant for all of us, isn't it? And we're going to start that series today. We're going to call this series The Church, Our Church, Knowing What God Has Designed and Understanding Where I Fit. And that's going to be a four-week series. If you have your bulletin, we put the notes right there in the middle. And I just want to sort of lay out the sort of the outline that we're going to follow for this series. Today we're going to look at what church or what is church. We're going to look at that today. How does God define the church? And what is its purpose on the earth? That's today's lesson. Next week, Pastor Mel is going to speak to us about why church. Why is the church so crucial to the success of God's will and kingdom? And why is it a privilege to be a part of that success? So that's next week. Third uh, lesson we will have is called How Church. Once we understand what the church is and why it's so crucial, we will need to understand how to operate properly as the church. And we'll look at what that exactly looks like. And then our last lesson, Lord willing, will be number four. It'll be Go Church. Once we understand what the church is and how important it is for God and his will, then we are going to be inspired and encouraged to do our role. And so that's sort of our outline. So what church, why church, how church, and go church. It kind of sounds like a Dr. Seuss book, right? But that's going to be our four-week lesson on the church, and I hope you guys will make, uh, make that a priority to be here for that. And I'm going to be honest, I don't, think the, I don't think the devil likes this. I don't think he's going to like this series because two things. I think scripturally this is exactly against what he wants. And I'm going to be honest, this past week I was facing a lot of mental battles. And I do ask that you pray for your pastors. It's just one of those things that we kind of go through. So this past week was one of those heavier weeks. And I just think the devil's not going to like what we're going to talk about today. So I encourage you to really listen up and uh, let's see what we can do to fight him in that. But today... We're going to talk about what church, what is church. And this entire series is not really just about giving you a bunch of information. We do want to give information. We do want to be clear, but I don't want it to just be going to a class. I want you all to be inspired, to be encouraged, and really to start buying into what God believes the church is if you aren't already. So we're going to, we think it's important to look at these things. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to pause and do what we don't normally do. Normally, we go through a book together, but we're going to pause and talk about what the church is and all hopefully get on the same page. Did you ever not understand a term that someone used? Right? What is the language we speak here in America? I'm asking hard questions today. What's the language we speak here in America? What is it? English. Are we foggy on that? We speak English. That's right. We speak English here in America. We love the English language. We don't like those who don't speak it. We think everyone should speak English, right? It's the best. Uh, where did the English language come from? Here's another hard question. Where did it come from? Did it come from the Native Americans? Where did the English language come from? Maybe we'll pause and do another series after this. Not from Germany, no. It came from England, right? It's kind of like right there in the name. Come on, you knew that, Luke. You knew English came from England. But in, in, did you know that? Okay, good. Um, in lines of that, we're gonna, I want to share with you a little bit of a story. Now, you may think that in England, maybe you don't think this, but maybe you do. In England, they speak the exact same language as we do, right? It's English. But you might be surprised to know how many different terms we use than the British do. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit of a story here. It's very short. <clears throat> but it's full of British terms. It's English. It's perfectly English. In fact, it's more English than probably our English is. But it's full of terms that only the British would use. And I want you to sort of make note of some of these words. And I'm going to ask you at the end, what are some of these words? What do they mean in the American version of English? So listen to this short little tale. It says, one day I realized I was out of bog rolls. I didn't want things to go pear-shaped in the loo. So I grabbed my jumper and brawly, left my flat, and headed out to the market. Can you tell I'm trying to do an English accent? It's pretty brutal. It's not <laughs> I'll preach better. I'll try. Like anyone, I got distracted looking at crisps and candy floss. But then I remembered the football match was on that afternoon. So I made haste. I found the bog rolls next to the cling film and decided to get both. Naturally, I had to pass the section of mince on my way out, and it gave me an intense craving for fish and chips. I then couldn't put it out of my mind. I had to have fish and chips for the football match. As I left the market thinking only about my craving, I nearly got hit by a lorry and almost ran over a mum with a pram. Safe to say, she was gobsmacked at my rudeness. 
I offered to buy her some nappies for her baby, but she just ignored me. Flustered, I decided to forego the fish and chips and just stroll on by the pillar box in case any important post had come to me. Arriving back at my flat, I realized I had scraped my knee in the street. Luckily, I had one plaster left. I licked my wounds, and since my stomach was empty, I grabbed some crisps on my way over to the telly. The phone rang as soon as I sat down. I grabbed a biro in case there was an important message. But there was nothing but an engaged tone on the other end of the line. Frustrated, I hung up and took a nap. He says, it's true that sometimes in your effort to avoid a bog rollless situation in the loo, things go pear-shaped and you end up scraping your knee on a mum with a pram and end up covered in plaster eating stale crisps. The end. Did anyone understand that? Yes? Really? And what I'm going to do now, just for a moment or two, is quiz you. Because this is the English language, people. This is the English language. I want to know if you know what some of these terms mean. Let's start here at the beginning. Bog rolls. He says he was out of bog rolls. Anyone know what that is? What is it? Toilet paper. Good job. Good job. He says, I didn't want things to go pear-shaped. What does he mean by pear-shaped? It's a tricky one, right? Anyone know? <laughs> drastically wrong. That's what pear-shaped means. I didn't want things to go drastically wrong in the loo. What's the loo? We kind of use that word. The bathroom, right, okay. So he says, I grabbed my jumper. What's a jumper? A oh, good, a sweater. Okay, I was picturing some kind of denim overall thing. It's a sweater, and he grabbed his brawly. What's a brawly? An umbrella, you guys are good. And I left my flat. What's a flat? An apartment, that's right. And I headed to the market, we know what that was. Like anyone, I got distracted looking at crisps. Chips, good job. And candy floss. Cotton candy, nice work. Are you 100% back there, Dan? Good job. But then I remembered the football match. And what is he talking about? Soccer, exactly. They call soccer football. So I made haste. What does that mean? I went quickly. I found the bog rolls. We just learned that. Next to the cling film. What is that? Yeah, saran wrap. Good job. Saran wrap. And decided to get both. Naturally, I had to pass the section of mince. Ground beef. I guess. Someone needs to fact check these, okay? Fact check these. Mince meat. Okay, maybe we need to put the word meat in there. And it gave me an intense craving for fish and chips. What's chips mean? French fries. That's right. Good. I then couldn't put it out of my mind. I had to have fish and chips. We just learned that one for the football match, meaning soccer match. As I left the market thinking only about my craving, I nearly got hit by a lorry. A truck. <laughs> that's right. That sounds, wow, that sounds, that's a really soft term for a truck. A lorry. And I almost got ran, I almost ran over a mum with a pram. A mother, a mother with a baby stroller. Good job. Safe to say she was gobsmacked. Astonished or shocked. Good job. At my rudeness, I offered to buy her some nappies. Diapers. Diapers for her baby, but she just ignored me. Flustered, I decided to forego. Skip it. Go without the fish and chips and just stroll on by the pillar box. The mailbox. In case an important post mail came to me. Arriving back at my flat, we learned that already apartment, I realized I had scraped my knee in the street. Luckily, I had one plaster left. A bandage, good. So I licked my wounds, and since my stomach was empty, I grabbed some crisps, we learned that already, on my way over to the telly. The TV, the television. I like that one. Can we, can we bring that one over? Let's bring that one over to the sea. Telly. The phone rang as soon as I sat down, so I grabbed a biro. This one I did not know. I'd never heard this before. Biro. A ballpoint pen. Again, fact check that one. A biro. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. It's B-I-R-O. E-I-R-O, in case there was an important message, but there was nothing but an engaged tone on the other end of the line. Engaged tone? No. Yeah, good, a busy signal. Frustrated, I hung up and took a nap. It's true that sometimes in your effort to avoid a bog rollless, toilet paperless situation in the loo bathroom, things go pear-shaped, drastically wrong, and you end up scraping your knee on a mum with a pram and end up covered in plaster, eating some stale crisps. Wow, isn't that an interesting story? We learned a lot of British terms today, but the reason I share that today is because terms can confuse us sometimes, right? If people use terms differently than we do, here's another example. If we were going to go to a safari, okay, we would probably never do that. That would take a lot of money. Deacons, 
Let's talk about that. Go to a safari, and um, I wanted to capture these things, and I said to you, can you grab my camera out of the trunk? And for some strange reason, you moseyed over to the elephant. That would be a bad idea, because that's not the trunk I'm referring to. I'm referring to the back of a car. But terms have that thing, don't they? They can confuse us. And I'm going to be honest. I think church is one of those terms. I think there's a church that we see in Scripture, and then I think there's a church that we understand according to the world. And we're going to hope to clarify what real church is today, what God thinks of church. I want to use this sort of this passage here as sort of the backdrop for what we're saying. He says in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is a really important thing to God. We're going to learn that if we haven't learned that already, that the church is really important. It's God's singular plan to defeat evil, the church. But we need to understand what God's version of church is, because unfortunately, it does not line up often with the world's idea of church. So in order to talk about what the church is, we're going to have to sort of knock down some things that the church is not. And I don't mean to step on some toes here, because I know we all struggle with this idea of church. But in order to understand what it is, we need to knock down what it isn't. And the first thing we're going to talk about is what is not the church. What is not the church? I have five things that I came up with that I think sometimes we refer to as the church. And the first one is the building. The building or the place where the church gathers. If you look into scripture, you don't find any semblance of that at all. The example would be this. The church needs a fresh coat of paint. Obviously, if someone says that, hopefully they're referring to the building, right, and not the people. <laughs> the church needs a fresh coat of paint, but this is a classic one. This one is really difficult because I find myself saying this a lot, referring to the church as the building, okay? This building that we meet in, we love our little building here. Eventually, we want to move out and find something bigger. So we all say we're looking for a new church, but we're not looking for a new church. What we're looking for is a new building, right? We love our church. I hope you love your church. What we're looking for is a new building, and scripture really doesn't put forward that the church is a building at all. It's a place where the church gathers. Now, we, we call this Wyoming Valley Church. But as we're going to look at it, it doesn't mean building. Okay, that's the thing we need to get out of our vocabulary. And I know that's difficult because we don't really have a name for the church building, do we? We don't. We don't, we don't call it a synagogue or a temple or a mosque or anything like that. So it's really simple and easy to call it the church. I'll meet you at the church. But I think we need to find a term. I really do. In fact, I've been trying to train myself to call it church building. And I'm the kind of guy that likes to save words, if at all possible. I like to trim it down. I would love to just say church, but I don't think we should. I really don't. When I look into the scriptures, I think it's confusing if we start referring to the church as the building. And I also think you could say this. It might be demeaning to Christ's bride. Humor me, but if someone would come across and look at a building and go, hey, look, there's Todd's bride, I would be entirely offended by that. But that's kind of what we're talking about here today. As we're going to look today, church is not a building. The second thing it is not is a service that the church attends together. What we're doing right now, here's the example for this one. Unfortunately, I'm going to be late to church this morning. We all find ourselves saying things like that, don't we? But again, if you look into scripture, that is not God's idea of church. It is not a service. The church attends a service together, but the church is not its service. Here's another one that goes along with that. The event on Sunday mornings, all of this is not the church. The example for this would be, wasn't church great this morning? That's a tough one. That is a tough one. Because it sounds like it's splitting hairs. It's like, oh, really? I mean, we're close, right? We're in the ballpark. Because what we did is we experienced church together. But you have to remember that God's definition of church might be different than ours. And we need to understand that it's not a service and it's not an event. The next thing it's not is the pastor or its leaders. It's not the church. Now, there's an entire really big denomination that when they refer to the church, they're referring to the leaders of the church. The example for this would be, this morning the church is telling us about the true meaning of the church. Pastor Mel and I without you guys, are not the church. So the church does not refer to the leaders or the pastors of the church. It doesn't refer to the hierarchy of the church. So that's the next thing that church does not mean. The last thing that I found that sometimes we refer to churches 
the entirety of the Christian religion. The example for this would be, I'm religious and a church goer. It just means I'm Christian. I'm religious. I do a lot of Christian things. But if you look into scripture, it is not referred to that whatsoever. So those are five things. Maybe you guys could come up with more than that. But that's five things that I find myself referring to church. But if I look into scripture, God doesn't. It's kind of like that story I read at the beginning. We come up with our own terms here in the English language, right, for things we like to call it. But that's not sometimes what the English um, had for us. So what does God have for us? What is church? What is church? That is the nagging question we have to figure this out today. And I'm going to say this. Since God created the church, since he's the one that instituted the church for his purposes and will, we should only care about one thing. What does God consider the church? I'm serious. We should only consider and, and care about that one thing, is what does God call the church? Not what the world does. The world is wrong and a lot of things, right? God is right. What God says is true and right, and we're going to sort of wrap our minds around what he considers the church this morning. And if we're wrong, like I have been wrong, we need to admit it and we need to change. We need to clean up our vocabulary. We need to clean up the confusion. We need to figure out this thing called the church, and then we need to have a real uh, sensitivity towards it. Because God really loves his church, really does. And sometimes, even as a pastor, it's easy to get critical over the church. And I don't mean this church, I mean the church, and go, wow, the church isn't really a very pretty thing, is it? I mean, you look around, there's a lot of stories in the news about pastors and leaders falling, and you kind of look, wow, the church really isn't a very pretty thing. But I think we need to be careful with that kind of language as well because the church in God's eyes is a very beautiful thing. In fact, I would say this, it's increasing in beauty. So we're going to look now at what is the church. What is the church? In order to do that, we have to look at three attributes that define the church. Three attributes that if you are the church, you have all three of these things. Okay? Number one is this. Every single part of the church started sinful. They are sinful by nature. That's the first thing. The first attribute is every single person who is now part of the church started out sinful. Is that ideal? No. Is that what God wanted? Absolutely not. But it's just the reality. Every single one of us started out sinful. And if you are going to be part of the church, you have to recognize that. That I was sinful, I've broken God's laws, I felt short of God's standard. Because if you don't understand the first attribute, you're not going to understand or appreciate the second attribute, which is you need to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. The second attribute of the church is that they are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And really that idea is simply brought back to God. Sinfulness separates you from God. It creates a huge chasm between us and God. The redemption and the blood of Christ brings us back together with God. It's really simple, right? But really profound. His blood is that powerful. His redemptive qualities, his salvation in our lives is so powerful, it restores our relationship to God. It closes the chasm. And now we're back together with our God. Isn't that a great thing? So that's the second attribute. You have to be sinful by nature. You have to be redeemed by the blood of Christ after you recognize your sinfulness. You have to turn to Jesus. And I hope every single one of Every single person in this room has done that, has realized they're sinful and they're in need of restoration and forgiveness. They're in need of cleansing. We talk about that a lot, and we're going to continue to. But this idea of redeemed is restored, forgiven, cleansed, made new. Have you been made new? Have you been cleansed of your sins? The third attribute is this, and we're going to cover this in a little bit. The church is supernaturally given the Holy Spirit to indwell them. So they can do one very important thing. Accomplish the Lord's work upon the earth. And two and three go really well together because they're a package deal. If you are redeemed by the blood of Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit. And if you want the Holy Spirit, you must be redeemed by the blood of Christ. So that's a package deal. But those are the three attributes that I can see in Scripture. If you want to be a part of the church, you need to understand and recognize your sinfulness. You need to be Redeemed by Christ, you need to throw yourself upon his mercy. And number three, you need to have the Holy Spirit. And that's what the church begins as. The church begins as this. And so as, if we understand that, we can go from here and go, okay, now what is the church? Let's describe now what the Bible considers the church. And this is tough. I know this is going to 
be a retraining of our minds. If you've ever done something one way for the entirety of your life, isn't that a hard habit to break? Isn't it? If you've done something one way your entire life and you've called the church the building or the service or the event or its leaders or whatever, it's going to be difficult to now retrain our minds. But I really think this is important for us to understand the value of the church. The first thing that God considers the church is a people group. The church is a people group that belongs to God. I want to read a passage that we find this from. It's 1 Peter 2, a book we just studied. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 10. Listen to what it says. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see that there? God has a people. God has a special people group, and that's what we call the church. In the Old Testament, there was also a people group that belonged to God. They were called church. The Israelites, remember that? The Israelites were God's people. And you were either an Israelite or you were not an Israelite. If you were not an Israelite, you were not God's people. It was that clear cut back in the Old Testament. So God fought for his people. God sustained his people. God gave special love to his people, the Israelites, and everyone else did not receive that from God because God had a people group. Here today, God has a people group, and we call it in the New Covenant, the church. The church is God's people group. In fact, you could say it was always his plan for the church. Now it just doesn't depend on where you're born. Now it depends on one person, Christ. If you're born of Christ, you are his church. And if you're not, you're not God's people. But this people group is going to be very special because they're going to be used by God. Listen to this. This is why the devil hates this. Because this church is going to be used to conquer the devil. He's going to take this people group and conquer evil with it. And that's really important and profound. So this people group, in God's eyes, are very special. And then we need to be careful with our language because the church to God is very special. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be demeaning toward the church. We should be careful with our language towards God's church because God considers them treasure, the apple of his eye. And they also have a very special assignment and purpose. And we just talked about that. So the church is the new covenant Israelites. And it has one prerequisite, faith in Christ. That means if you're a natural Israelite, you can have faith in Christ. If you are an American, you can have faith in Christ. If you're from England, you can have faith in Christ. Or from Africa, or from wherever. If you grew up Catholic, or Jewish, or Mormon, if you have faith in Christ, you are God's church. There's one qualifier for that. So this people group is God's chosen people. God's chosen people is really special. And this kind of leads into number two. Because as we find in Scripture, the church is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. I want you to think about that phrasing. The bride of Christ who, the church, is now currently in the process of beautifying themselves. Preparing themselves to meet and marry the bridegroom, which is the Lord Jesus, forever. That's what the church is doing now. If you're the church, that's exactly your role to beautify, to prepare yourself, to make ready yourself for the marriage ceremony with the Lord Jesus. Maybe that sounds weird. Maybe it sounds weird that we're going to marry the Lord, but marriage on the earth was a representation of that. It was supposed to reflect and represent the eternal union we will one day have with the Lord. That's why marriage is also really important, because it reflects something eternal. It reflects a relationship that Christ is going to have with his people for the rest of time. So we are the bride of Christ. Listen to what it says in Revelation 19, 6 to 9. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The bride of Christ, the church, is now in a preparation process. If you guys, if there's any brides out in the room who have been married recently or not recently, you guys remember that process, right? You remember preparing yourself 
for the day when you were married, for the ceremony. I remember when my bride did, when my wife did. We have pictures to document it. She prepared herself and made herself ready for the coming day when she would marry me. And that's really what the church is doing now is we are preparing ourselves, making ourselves ready to meet the bridegroom one day. And that's really important because as we're going to talk about all throughout this lesson, Jesus is worthy of that. The bridegroom is worthy to have a bride who prepares herself for that day. Not to just wake up and throw whatever on and say, here I am, Lord, get what you get. Wouldn't that be terrible if a bride did that for the bridegroom? That's not how brides act. Brides prepare themselves. Brides get their hair ready and their dress ready and they, they make sure everything is as perfect as possible because they want the day to be special for their groom. So the church is the bride of Christ. As the bridegroom, Jesus gets to choose his eternal bride. It's a term that we call election. It's not a very popular term, I'm going to be honest, but it is in Scripture. God gets to choose his bride. He just does. And I think we all would say that's right and good for people on the earth, isn't it? Grooms should be able to choose their own bride, right? If a bride is forced upon the groom, that's not a good thing. But for some reason, when we think about it within the context of the Lord, we hate that. We hate the fact that the Lord seemingly is choosing people to give his special love and grace to. But if you remember, the first prerequisite of the church is we're all sinners. All of us. And that means every single one of us do not deserve God's love. None of us, myself included. So when God decides to choose someone to give his special love and grace to, it's a privilege. It's a very special privilege and there are many in this room who have received that love, who have received that covenant love from Christ where he says, I want you a part of my church. I want you. And those hearts who Christ has softens, he gives them a choice. He softens their heart. He shows them his love. And he says, now follow me or stay in your sins. Follow me, get everything that I will give you for the rest of eternity, or stay where you are and die. Because he doesn't force it upon anyone either. I'm going to show you my love. I'm going to choose you as my bride. But every bride, we know this as well, has to choose the groom as well, right? If the bride, excuse me, if the bride has forced her way um, from someone else, from somewhere, maybe a family member or whatever, into a marriage, that's not a good thing either. Both people must choose. But there's one very special thing that Christ does. He has to soften our hearts. <coughs> By his grace, because if God does not soften the hearts of those whom he wants to love, we will not choose Christ. So Christ softens our hearts. He shows us his love. He shows us the cross. He makes very clear to us how much we need him. And then he says, follow me. Follow me. Come into a covenant love with me. I will love you. You will love me for the rest of time. You can't find a better package than this. No one in the world can rival the love of our Lord Jesus. No one. But Christ says, come to me. Come. Find my love. Be in union and married to me for the rest of time. And there's passages like Ephesians chapter 2, 18 to 22, and Romans 12, 5, that reiterate this point, that Jesus Christ has chosen his church to redeem, to love, to give his special grace and tenderness for the rest of time. I am thankful for that. I am. I'm going to be honest, I wouldn't have chosen Christ. If he didn't soften my heart, if he didn't show me his special love and reveal to me how much he loves me, I wouldn't have chosen him. But the fact that he did, the fact that he revealed to me how much he loves me, softened my heart. And it finally said, Lord, I want you. I want you in return. I want to enter into a covenant with you. So that's the second thing we see in Scripture, that the church is the bride of Christ. And if you are a part of that church, now on earth, your job is simple. Prepare yourself. Make yourself holy. Obey his commandments. Do everything that the Lord has called you to do so that one day he can have a worthy bride. A bride who stands before him and says, Lord, I love you. I've prepared myself this entire time for you. I'm not perfect, obviously. I need your cross. I need your forgiveness. But I have been preparing myself for this. Number three. We talked about this one already. This is a prerequisite to be the church. The church are supernaturally redeemed souls by the blood of Christ, given a, a excuse me, given power from God, 
from the Holy Spirit to accomplish his work. That Holy Spirit is really important because when God calls his church, he gives them a task, an assignment. And if you know anything scripturally, that assignment is going to be impossible for man to do. And God knew that. God knew that. So God gave the Holy Spirit this divine helper to come inside of us to help us, to give us the power and strength and the knowledge and the wisdom that we need to do what God has called us to do. Listen to this passage from 1 Peter 1, chapter 3, one that we studied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus came to this earth, he accomplished his work. He taught, he trained, he showed the way, and then he gave up his life on the cross. And after he did that, he rose again. We celebrate that. And after Jesus finished his work, he ascended back into heaven. <laughs> you have to imagine this. They've been with, the disciples had been with Jesus by, for three years by that moment. And they're all terrified, saying, Jesus, you cannot leave. You cannot leave. We cannot do this task without you. You can't leave us. How are you going to send back to heaven? What are we going to do without you? And Jesus said something intriguing to them. He said, it's to your advantage that I go. What? How is it to our advantage that you go back to heaven and abandon us here on this earth? Jesus said, because if I ascend back to heaven, I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to do something that I have yet to do. You've always had me next to you. You've always had me near you. You've always had me training you and teaching you. From this moment on, when the Holy Spirit comes, I'm going to be inside of you. It's actually going to be more profound than having me next to you because I'll never leave you. I'll always be with you. Whatever you go through, I'll go through. Whatever you need to do that is hard, I'm going to strengthen you for the task. Isn't that a great thing to know? So if you remember the scene in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they were told to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. So that's exactly what the disciples did. They went to Jerusalem, they went in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit came. And it, it was an amazing scene, a really dramatic scene. And all of a sudden they started to speak in languages they didn't know. They started to share and proclaim the message of the gospel in a powerful way. They also begot, they got healing powers and started doing miraculous things all over the nation. And the credit goes to Christ because that was his helper. So Jesus sends the helper. He sends the helper to those whom he's redeemed. And he says, I know the task I've called you to is really hard, but I'm going to give you divine power. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 1 with me. Because this church that we're talking about today, although Wyoming Valley Church has two pastors, Pastor Mel and myself also have a pastor. Did you know that? It's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the chief shepherd of all the church. And I want you to look at Ephesians 1 here in a minute. I'm going to highlight verses 22 and 23. Listen to what it says. Speaking of Jesus. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Colossians. It's two books after this. Colossians chapter 1. And I want you to listen to verse 18. It says, He, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that everything, he might be preeminent. Jesus is the head of the church. And Jesus knows that the task of the church is impossible to accomplish without his power. So he had planned and he had prepared that as soon as he ascended, he was going to send the helper to his people. And this helper that we have received is so helpful. If you know the Holy Spirit's help in your life, you know how important it is. And I will say this confidently to every single one of you. I can't do what I do in this church without the Holy Spirit. It cannot happen. I'm not capable of it. I'm not the person that was qualified and called for this without God. I wasn't supposed to be your pastor, but when the Holy Spirit comes and enables someone to do it, they're able to do something they weren't otherwise able. And that's an amazing thing to know. So this church is given this Holy Spirit, and therefore God says, and Christ says, go, do my work. Do my work. And we can't turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I can't. I'm not qualified. I'm not called. I, I'm not the person you're looking for. Because Jesus can say to us, I know. 
but I've given you my helper. I've given you the divine help that you need. You can do it in my strength because you have the Holy Spirit. And this Spirit is going to empower his church to magnify his name and spread the gospel to the world. The world has to hear the gospel, don't they? How are they going to hear it? It says that in Romans. How will they hear the gospel if no one goes? How will the world hear the gospel if no one is sent, if no one takes it to them? We have to be the light in this world. And the Lord Jesus has given us his power to be able to do that. So that's the third thing we see from the church. They're the special people of God. They're the bride of Christ. And number three, they've been given the Holy Spirit to accomplish his task. If you're staying with me, let's go to number four. This is a really important one, too. The church is an eternal family unit. It has many different roles and abilities, but it has one common goal, and we just share that goal. Do God's work. And in order to do that work, you're going to need a family. You're going to need to be strengthened by others. You're going to need strength in numbers. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. See, we are a family. We are one unit. I can't think of anything worse than when the church fights the church. Because the church is a family. The church is supposed to be unified. And that's why I asked Dan to read Ephesians chapter 4, because... It illustrates that, how important it is for us to unify, how important it is that the church has a family that comes together. And that's exactly why we called our Wednesday gathering church family time. That's exactly why. Because this family that we have in the church is our most profound family. It's the family that we'll have for the rest of eternity. Your family physically on the earth will not be your family in heaven. I will not be married to Janine in heaven. My children will no longer be my children but I will have a family in heaven, and so will you. It's the church. That makes it the most profound family unit. And God has set it up this way so that we have this family unit. So although there's difference in roles and difference in functions and difference in abilities and talents, it's all the same goal. We're all headed the exact same way. We're all trying to accomplish the exact same thing, and we're all helping one another do it. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool to know? One goal. So I'm a pastor, I'm preaching, I'm helping that way, but every single person has a role in this church. And unless this church functions like a family, it's going to be weakened. And if that family structure is weakened, then the devil's job is going to get that much easier. The eternal purpose of this church is so profound that anyone who buys into it is going to be blessed forevermore. And it can only be accomplished. This task can only be accomplished. I wish I could underline this, highlight it, bold it, capitalize it by unifying together in love. God set it up that way. If you unify, if you come together, you will win. If you separate, if you divide, if you fight, you won't win. And this purpose that we have, if we buy into the church, if we unify together to do it according to God's plan, we're going to do something that we already mentioned. We're going to defeat the devil and his kingdom. And that's why I started the lesson the way that I did. Jesus says, on this church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I want you to think of gates as a defense mechanism to keep someone or something out. And the church is the battering ram, knocking the gate down, grabbing people from the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of hell, excuse me. So do you want a purpose? Do you want a purpose in this life? I think most people flounder and struggle in this life because of the lack of a purpose. I really do. When people don't have a purpose, they flounder. They struggle. They struggle with depression and suicidal thoughts. Because what is my purpose? Why am I here? Am I valuable at all to anyone? The church is that purpose. It is. It's God's purpose. I can say this confidently, there is no greater purpose on the earth than the church because everything that the world has that is an important purpose, whether it be recycling, looking out for the rainforests, watching out for the animals of the earth, all good purposes, but the earth is going away, isn't it? We've learned that from scripture. 
The church and God's kingdom are never going away. So if you want a purpose, if you're looking for a purpose in your life, find it in God's church. It's the best use of your time. It's the best use of your energy. It will never go away. Can you tell why the devil would hate this kind of teaching? Because it hurts his kingdom. If he knows the church is here and they understand their task, they understand what they're doing, they understand what they've been given, and they all unify in order to do it, he's going down. And he hates that. So he has to undermine and he has to change the language of the church and confuse us all and get us bickering and fighting one another because when we do, he weakens us. But if we all buy into the church, we find our purpose. And when we find our purpose, we seize it. We go after it. And we're going to accomplish great things for God's name. The fifth thing the church is, is God's singular plan to accomplish his will on the earth and defeat evil. Once again, listen to Matthew 16. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You see, God put all of his eggs in the basket of the church. All of them. He is banking that he's going to accomplish everything he needs to accomplish in the church, and there is no plan B. It's the church or bust. And God's plan will not bust. So if you are part of the church, you're going to accomplish an amazing task for the kingdom of God. And if you're not a part of the church, you're going to miss out. And if you leave the church, this is how unified it is to God. If you leave the church and don't think the church is important for you, you also leave God. Because God has no plan B. There is no other plan. There is no other way he's going to defeat evil. There is no other way he's going to mature you. It's only through the church. God put all of his power, his love, his special graces into the church, and the Lord's going to conquer evil with it. Because when God takes the church and he conquers the devil with it, he, he receives excuse me, the most glory he could. Because imagine this. I don't know if you've ever seen these movies, these tough guy movies, Jason Bourne and stuff like that, where he, uh, he likes to beat people up with like magazines and towels and things like that. It's like, uh, like look, look what I can beat you with kind of thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not just strong, but look what I can beat you with. Well, it's kind of the same way with God. God takes this weak instrument called the church, and he strengthens it, and he uses it, and he wields it, and he defeats the kingdom of, of evil with it. And then he says... Look what I just defeated you with. Look what I beat you with. And God gets the most glory when he does that. So God has no plan B. He is going to defeat evil, and he is going to defeat evil with the church, either with us or in spite of us. So the five things that the church is that I can see scripturally are, number one, the people group of God, the special people group of God. Number two, again, the bride of Christ, really important. Number three, um, redeemed souls given the Holy Spirit to accomplish his work. Number four, a family unit, an eternal family unit. And number five, God's singular plan to accomplish his will upon the earth. Do you love God's church? Are you thankful for God's church? What does defining the church properly accomplish? Because that's the task today. We need to define the church properly, but what does it do if we define it properly? What does it accomplish if we define the church properly? Here's three things. If we change our language from building, from service, from event, from its leaders, to the things we just talked about, here are the three things it's going to accomplish. We're going to appreciate this thing called the church. We are, and we're going to get back to this. If we define it properly, I think it enhances our ability to appreciate this thing called the church that is a gift of God's love and mercy. This is nothing to be taken for granted. This is a special gift from God. This writer in the Old Testament, I was just talking with Brother Dave about this. Solomon wrote this book called Ecclesiastes. Solomon, the wisest person who ever lived, at least before the Lord Jesus, was wise. And he tried to live for every pleasure and desire on the earth. He tried to find a purpose. He tried to find a function. So he gave himself to every single one of them. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the entire book, it's just Solomon saying that everything is vanity. Vanity of vanities. A chasing after the wind. 
I tried it. I had it. I sunk my teeth into it. It failed me. It let me down. It was hollow. It was shallow. That's what he describes the earth as. Vanity. A chasing after the wind. You know what's not vanity? You know what's not chasing after the wind? God's church. God's church. Number two thing, if we define the church properly, we'll find our purpose in God's church and not the world. Not the world, because no matter what you give yourself to, if it's of the world, by its very nature, it's going away. So if you give yourself to it, although it seems incredibly important now, if it's not eternal, if it's not going to be there on the other side, then what have we done? What have we really accomplished? Didn't we just spin our wheels? Didn't we just do exactly what Solomon said? Tried to chase the wind. But not the church. The church is the greatest purpose of all. Number three, if we define the church properly, we gain an eternal family. With Jesus as the head of it, and with that family, we can defeat evil and live victoriously, just like we talked about in 1 Peter. And that eternal support and fellowship from that family, I hope you realize how important that is. And I'm going to, once again, reiterate church family time on Wednesdays, because that's the whole point. I call that the nitty-gritty of the church. That's when we come together and act like a family. It's no longer just me preaching and everybody listening. It's the family coming together, helping one another with the same goal in mind. So remember how we started this? The ways that church is not according to the scriptures. Listen, if this is the church, these things, the building, the service, the event on Sunday, the leaders of the church, and the Christian religion, if that is the church, I don't know why the screen is doing that. I'm sorry for that. You'll just have to listen to me. If this is the church, the building, the service, the event, the leaders, and its religion, it's not worth a lot of investment. It makes sense why you wouldn't invest in that a lot. It does. If that's what church is, I understand why it's a sliver of our lives. Because that's not profound. Do you know how many people are doing that this very day? Going to a building, hearing a sermon, having an event, listening to its leaders, acting like they're a Christian, and then turning it off right after that. That's not profound. So that's not worth a lot of investment because that's the world's version of church. But if this is the church, the people of God, the bride of Christ, supernaturally redeemed souls given the Holy Spirit, an eternal family with Christ as the head of it, and God's singular plan to accomplish his will, it's worth every investment you can throw at it. Every amount of time, every amount of energy, every amount of money. If you give yourself to this thing that God calls the church, you are investing eternally. Because that's God's version of the church. And with God's version of the church, he's going to accomplish an eternal domination. And we get to be a part of that. So very quickly, are you a part of Christ's church? I'm not asking if you're giving a tenth of your life to the church. Are you a part of Christ's church? Have you bought into Christ's church? Number one, do you belong to God through faith in Christ? You have to. There is no way around that. If you have not come through Christ, you have not come at all. You have to come through Christ. Number two, are you preparing to meet Christ one day through holiness and obedience to Christ's commandments because there is a ceremony coming? A magnificent ceremony coming. And the bride of Christ should prepare themselves for that day. Are you doing that? Number three, have you been supernaturally redeemed by the blood of Christ and given God's Holy Spirit? And do you know that? Do you see that power and influence in your life? Do you have divine power from God? You will know it if you do. You will know it if you have the Holy Spirit because you will do things you otherwise cannot do. Number four, is the church your most profound family? Isn't that convicting to think about? Is the church your most profound family? Your earthly family will not be your family in heaven. I hate to disappoint you, but it's not going to happen. The church will be your eternal family, and it's worth investing in. Just like any good family is worth investing in, the church most of all. Number five, are you living to accomplish God's will and magnify his name upon the earth? Is that why you exist? To do whatever God says for his glory, for his purposes. And number five, 
Are you fully surrendered and committed to Jesus? Have you found your purpose in him? I really pray that you do, because that is the purpose of all purposes, that you find your purpose in Christ. He is the head of the church, and he is the reason each of us live. One last thing. If we are the church, we are God's people. He is our Father. If we are the church, our sins are paid for. If we are the church, we have the most important purpose on the earth. If we are the church, we have an eternal family. If we are the church, we are the victors. And if we are the church, we await eternal life. And if we're not the church, look what happens. Not God's people. God is not our Father. Our sins are not paid for. We have no purpose on the earth that matters. We have no eternal family. We are the eternal losers and we await eternal destruction. Do you see how important the church is? Can you see it? Do you see what kind of an investment this is worth? The last thing we'll say today is Jesus worthy for you to buy into his church. Consider that. What did he give so that a church could exist? So that souls could be redeemed? So that sins could be forgiven? So that souls could be restored and brought back to God? We have to define church properly. We have to change our mind. And we have to change our vocabulary about the church. I honestly believe that. We have to invest in the church with everything we can. And I want to emphasize that. Everything we can. We need to find our purpose in the church. Our singular purpose on this earth should be in the church. And I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm saying that because it's true. We need to prepare ourselves for the coming bridegroom because Jesus has told us if he was going to send us a text today it would be on my way on my way get ready are you and I acting like the church today let's pray father thank you for this message thank you for the teaching of the church father we wouldn't know these things without you we can only see these things in your word and I pray that we would see them in your word this is not opinions this is exactly what you have taught us about the church, and it's the most important institution that ever existed. Father, help us to understand and to value that church today. Help us to change our perception of what the church is and the value of it. Help us to buy into it and invest in it and find our purpose, find our strength in you, unify together and defeat the evil upon this earth. We thank you and we praise you for most of all for Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.